This is Bar Crawl Radio. We record at neighborhood bars because Alan and I believe that's where the best conversations happen. Today, we are at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, across the street from the Mortuary, down the block from Gray's Papaya, and around the corner from the Beacon Theater and the magnificent Central Savings Bank. And did you know that used to be a German bank originally? Oh. 1859, I want to say. But you have to come visit that bank on 73. Third and, and Broadway. In Broadway. It's magnificent. It's amazing. It's, a, it's an Apple Bank. It's, it's an incredibly it's beautiful building. With a huge um, core in the middle opened up. More it's so even inside. It's like, it's, it's like a surprise. And for this uh, episode number 65 of Bar Crawl Radio, we are introducing a new series of podcasts with our co-producer, Chris Brandt, who you can hear now in the background. He's uh, prepping our, uh, our guest. Chris is a professor, peace activist, carpenter, and poet, and he helped produce BCR number 34 when we invited three poets to share their work related to the world poetry movement. We had such a great time, it was decided, all three of us, that we needed to talk poetry regularly on BCR. So today is the first in, we hope, a long series thinking about listening to, talking to writers about poetry, and we're calling it... Poetry. Everything. There you go. Poetry, what is it good for? And so, here we go. Yeah, there it is. Wade Ripka. And his uh, Eastern Blockheads from the former Soviet Union. Chris, welcome to Bar Crawl Radio. So, what's the inspiration for this BCR poetry series? Well, um, one of the things that I've always been interested in is what does poetry actually do in the world? What good is it? Right. Yeah. That's the title, Poetry, What Is It Good For? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I teach a course uh, at, in, at Fordham in the creative writing department that, is, that has that title, Poetry, What Good Is It? And it's a question that admits of endless discussion and endless thinking about it. Um, and so I thought, why not talk to poets? Very good, very good. Yeah, so, and it was after we had a show at the World Poetry Movement about poems and peace, yeah. which you had participated in a church on the east side. And, yeah. and then after the, that program, we kind of talked about it and said, we had so much fun. I did, I did, okay, can I just say again how I felt about the trepidation I had before going into that? I don't know if I ever mentioned it to you, Chris, but I am not good with poetry. I don't always get it. I feel intimidated by it. And so I was really afraid that I was, you know, not going to be able to understand what was going on. Um, and I wasn't looking forward to it, that BCR recording. But you, the poets that, that you invited to the, to the program were so intelligent, so warm, so funny. Um, I had such a great time. It was one of the best. Um, so that's, I think, what inspired Alan and I Well, i got to say, it wasn't Alan me that invited them there. It was Lola Kondakcha. Uh-huh. Right. And um, I, I picked out the three I liked. Right, okay, so it was you, so, Alan. Right. You, you picked out good ones, and right. Chris so was we, one we of had them. Some to it. But, yeah. but for, for this show, uh, for this series, you're going to be going and finding poets that you know, that yeah. live in the city, and that you're familiar with. And um, 
we're going to we're going to investigate and listen to what they do and hear their voice. Well, so let's begin. Why don't Why don't we get we started? We have two prolific, complex, and important writers with us today. Martha Collins has taught at the University of Massachusetts Boston, where she founded the Creative Writing Program at Oberlin College and at Cornell and Washington Universities, as well as other places. She's published 10 volumes of poems, the latest just out this month, Because What Else Could I Do?, a book of short poems mourning the sudden loss of her husband. And she has co-translated four volumes of Vietnamese poems. And Sarah Gambito is the director of the creative writing program at Fordham University in New York City. And full disclosure, I teach in that program. She's published three volumes of poems. The first, Matadora, won the 2005 Global Filipino Literary Award for Poetry. She's also been awarded grants from the New York Foundation of the Arts and the Urban Artists Initiative and the McDowell Kellany Fellowship. And Ms. Gambito is the founder of Kundiman, a nonprofit which serves emerging Asian American writers. So we're so happy to have you two join us here at Gebhard's. Beer Culture Bar. Mm-hmm. Here on Everyone's West 72nd Street. Everyone's got their beverage of choice. Yeah, cheers, everybody. <laughs> cheers. 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 We cheers. have to all be drinking beer. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. To poetry. Well, it's a beer culture to bar. poetry, indeed. <laughs> um, so, let's get this poetry series started. This is the first in what we hope is going to be a series of interviews with poets. We're going to call this first episode Overcoming Borders because both of you explore two kinds of borders in your poetry, racist borders and nationalist borders. And Sarah, you're Filipino-American. I don't know, actually, were you born in this country or in the Philippines? Yes, yes. I was born in Virginia. Uh, My parents both immigrated to the United States in the early 60s. So, uh, oh no, late 60s, late 60s, yeah, late 60s. Yeah, I was born in Virginia. And some of your work has investigated national borders, which are also cultural borders. In a poem in your book, Delivered, you describe how your uncle sometimes frightened your father by phoning him and pretending to be from immigration. Mm -hmm. Why is it important for your work to look at the issue of immigration, and how is that different from the sorts of public debates we've been having? My family wanted so badly and still want so badly to fit in that uh, there was zero discussion about difference. Um, So they just assumed I would assimilate and my sister and I would assimilate. Um, There was hardly like just zero track back to where um, they came from. And when you grow up like that, you grow up untethered. And I wanted to look at what is lost when we don't have difficult conversations, when um, we have to look back at trauma, we have to look at where we want to come from, where we come from and where we want to go. Here's the thing, in the process of immigration, often the focus is on what is it you will um, receive by doing that. And what I wanted to do in that book for Delivered is to look at what, it, what do you lose? Like, what, what do you, you lose, lose? For, forever? Yes. You know? Yes. Because um, that's what they would never talk about. So they so wanted you to assimilate. Yes. They basically erased yes. your heritage. Yes. Yes. But, yes. But in doing that, they weren't being truthful to what was going on in your life because clearly you weren't of the community you were with. Right. And, and can you think of a moment in, in your childhood where that became obvious to you? 
Yeah, like I, I, like sort of two linked moments. Um, I grew up in Virginia Beach, uh, which is we know Virginia next Beach. to. We do. We do. <laughs> well, our, our our son-in-law's uh, children live there. Lovely. Yes. Lovely. Is. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, it's, as you know, then it's it's next to Norfolk, Virginia, which is like one of the largest naval bases, That's and right. so yes. um, much of my family was very. Navy. Um, I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous. Like, what, what, was, the, what doing, was the question? You're doing fine. <laughs> what was the question? So when did you realize that Oh, there yeah. Was so, okay, so people, when they saw uh, my sister and I and our family, they would be like, oh, chi- Chinese. Ching, and they would say, ching chong, ching chong. And oh. it's like, I just, it got to the point where when people did that, I didn't hear it anymore. Like, it just became, like, white noise. Well, you have one poem where you say that your father called you chink. So you'd get used yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, I, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think, I think there, when you live there, like, you have, you have to survive. You have to just not see certain things. So I think that being read as just some kind of nondescript, largely Chinese person, like, I didn't understand what was being said to me. And then my mom would say, we're from the Philippines. And I had zero idea of what that meant, except for she had this beautiful little purse made uh, out of woven fabric, and it had, like, um, little white shells, like, embedded in it. And it said, it was cross-stitched into it was Philippines. And so when she said, we're from the Philippines, I thought of that bag. I was like, we're from the, the what does that mean? So that bag was the Philippines. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, she's like, that's where. I'm, and immediately, the only image I had was like, I would think about the bag, and I would be like, okay, that's that's what that is. So when when you wow. hear Philippines, is that the first thing that pops up? Not not now, but but no. definitely for a large part of growing up, because uh, when I graduated from college, for instance, I I told my family I want to go back to the Philippines, and they were like. Why would you want to go back there? <laughs> like we spent trying so hard to leave. Like they was just completely confounded as to why I would want to go back. But that's and you weren't going again. back. You were going for the first time, I imagine. As an adult, like I went when I was two, but I have no uh, memory. No. Um, but I wanted to go back as an adult, and they were just confounded as did, to why I would want to do that. Did you have family there? Yeah. 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 And so they did too, obviously. So. Yeah, but they they were like what? <laughs> just. Like, it was just seemed like uh, when, when, completely... When, when they were thinking, when they thought of the Philippines, how did they describe it? I mean, was it... They were like, it's really hot there. <laughs> <laughs> it's really crowded. My mom was like, when you go on the street, there's this thing called the jeepney, which is like the kind of taxi. She's like, it doesn't slow down for you. You have to jump on it. You have to jump on the jeepney. And it's like, that was, you know... Did that sound like fun or that's dangerous? That's how they talked about it. And, I mean, she was... She was no, no, danger, dangerous, yeah. dangerous. Yeah. But like there was, a, you know, in terms of a real engagement, it was really kind of very big sweeping kind of like, it's hot. It's <laughs> yeah. hot. Yeah. And why do yeah. you want to go there? Right. Um, yeah. So they yeah. really divorced the Philippines. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would say so. have you found, it is, you were one of the co-founders of Kundiman, which is an organization, a nonprofit that serves Asian American poets and writers. Yeah. Do you find that this is a a, a common theme among Asian American? That's a good question. Writers. Yeah. I mean, I think when you grow up with a hyphenated identity, you're always longing for yourself um, in ways that you can never quite explain. Like I'll, I'll tell a quick, like a mini story. Like I was in the Philippines 
in 2014, and I met this lovely woman from the Bay Area. She was there on a Fulbright. And I said, so since you've been living here for so long, where's more home, the Philippines or California? And she said, um, as a child of the diaspora, I have many homes. Whoa. And I was like, that's very nice, but <laughs> where do you feel more at home? <laughs> like, the Philippines or, or California? And she repeated it again, like, as a child of the diaspora, I have many homes. And I think, like, my work right now is to think about, like, how this way of understanding and being is, 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 is additive um, and is, um, I don't know, that I, that I can be encompassing in ways that, um, I don't know, I didn't really think of in that sense. And it's hard because, like, to say, it's, it's like when they, did they divorce the film? It's like they just like, didn't want to think about it too much. But it's always with you. Like, I guess that's part of it. You always long for it. It's with you. It's in your blood. You don't have it. All of those things are true. So this, I'm going to call it a disjuncture, uh, the feeling of this place where you're from but you're not from. A yearning. Is that, is, yeah. is that an energy or a negative energy or something that kind of uh, in, informs or leads you to the words you choose in your poems? It's like someone you love who loves you back but won't pick up the phone. <laughs> just can't live together. Right? Or just shows up at your apartment with like five dozen roses and then like, then like you know what I mean? Then forgets your name when you see them in the street. And doesn't call you on your birthday. Yeah, no way. No. Well, this is, this is a perfect segue into... I think so. Would you read for us your poem, I Am Not From The Philippines? Yes. And, you know... I wrote this because, obviously, I am from the Philippines. <laughs> so, um, okay. I am not from the Philippines. A white guy liked me, and it was like a lake might bend in half. I wanted to go to the Olive Garden. I said, yes, with my eyes like platelets. When God was Filipino, he put a pig and fire together and called it porquisimo. I grabbed a Filipino girl's hand and she said, are you a lesbian? I faked it to myself. I faked it to them all. All the nurses ever, ever in the world are Filipino. Like a push in the gut, I rush past the hovels of hospital rooms, the great digital of machines and humans simmering at work, the pork chop of the leg poking from the blanket. There will always be sick people. You'll always have a job. Nurses with their soft white shoes, their cuneiform writing, the change purses of nurses divoting around. My aunts, mothers, uncles, cousins, whiplashing into nurses. Of course, a lot of my, a lot of my family are nurses. <laughs> well, it, it is particularly funny to me because my granddaughter was a student at uh, College of New Rochelle, and almost all the students there were Philippine nurses, mm -hmm. nursing students. <laughs> what other kind of work did Filipinos do? Well, I have uh, my co-teacher is a teacher. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean, like in terms of? Well, I mean, um, a lot, a lot of a lot of Filipinos left Philippine, like your parents. Yeah. Because it was too hot or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I imagine it was more than just the heat. In 
the 60s, there was the sort of brain drain of uh, the Philippines. So you have a lot of kind of um, white-collar workers coming to the United States. So you have your nurses. My mom was a chemical engineer, so she came on the basis of that. My father was in the Navy. So it really runs the, the gamut, but there are like a significant number of Filipino nurses. And here. right now, there are an awful lot of Filipino guest workers in, in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Is it, did yeah. you write about how the, the Philippines, their major export of people? I might have, yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's something that's said in terms of like remittances are huge. The country really depends on this money that is sent back. And because it's so hard to find um, uh, work that's well paid, uh, oftentimes it, to, to provide for your family, like it, it, it makes a lot of sense um, to leave and then to send the money back. Yeah. I, I was in the Philippines once. I did a film there. And I was in Sabu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah at the port. Mm-hmm. It was like a surreal kind of experience. Um, yeah. But that's, that's another story. Yeah, you know? it is. It's yeah. an interesting well, story. Let's let's bring Martha into this conversation as well. Um, Martha is grew up in the Midwest, landlocked, not very far from the ocean, and all of that. But a lot of your poetry. Uh, can fit in with this theme of immigration, especially the the kind of racism that dovetails with our attitudes toward immigration. And Martha began teaching at the at the William Joyner Center for the study of war and social consequences. For the study of to war and social consequences, um, in which was founded in order to help, in, in much the way Kundiman helps Asian American writers to help American Vietnam veterans. And Martha learned Vietnamese and translated four books of Vietnamese poetry. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I got involved with the Joiner Center <coughs> because I was teaching at UMass Boston. There it is. And I got asked to teach a workshop in translation in the summer, which I was I thought, totally unqualified to do. But I met one of the visiting Vietnamese writers that year, and there were always Vietnamese writers, often veterans. Um, And he showed me his rough English translations of his poems, and I fell in love with him. At the same time, I had been a young protester during the Vietnam War, and it occurred to me that I really needed to do this. In very recent years, since people have been talking about reparations, I've realized that this has been for me a kind of act of reparation. I learned a great deal about language from dealing with a language which is completely different from English, with six tones in it for one thing. But I also, I've realized in recent years, I was thinking about this in terms of war, but Working with Vietnamese writers, taking four trips to Vietnam, immersed me in another culture in a way that prepared me for the books of poetry that I wrote myself after that, which dealt with the way that we other others. Right. Your Three of your books, Blue Front, White Papers, and Admit One, deal with our uh, what 
Alan and I like to call Yuzian history. We don't like to call it American because there are so many other there are more Americans, Americans than us. There are many Ameri and many Americans. So yes. th these three books deal with our Yuzian history of racism. Why is that so central to so much of your imagination? Well, I think I mentioned the Vietnamese connection, but I didn't think of that at the time. The inspiration for beginning what I consider a journey that I'm still on was that after I had made a trip to the South and looked at the civil rights monuments there, I came back to New York and my friends invited me to go see an exhibit of lynching postcards. And I discovered at that exhibit that what my father had described as seeing a man hanged in Cairo, Illinois, in the north, was actually a lynching, that there were 10,000 people there, that the primary victim was an African-American man, and that my father had been five years old. There was a family story about my father at five. He worked outside his uncle's restaurant in Cairo, Illinois, selling fruit at a fruit stand. And he uh, was kind of famous because he was very good at making change at five. But that's when he saw the lynching. So I wrote that book. I published it. There were people, a couple of people, I remember readings, asking what it felt like to be writing African-American history as a white person. And I had a quick answer to that, which was, if you were just going to film the lynching part of the story, which is not everything that's in the book, how many black actors would you need and how many white actors and how many white extras? But the lingering answer to that <clears throat> was thinking that I had other work to do. And then the term white papers came into my mind and I thought this is how I will deal with this. So white papers like, the, like Blue Front uh, about the lynching uses a lot of research. I researched the history not of slavery or racism in the South where I never lived, but in Iowa where I grew up and in New England. There's more of myself and my own background in this book than in anything I'd ever written because I had to go back to my own very white childhood in a state that was 99.3% white. And then the next step was that I read from both of these books and a friend of mine, a poet, said afterwards, you realize you're writing a trilogy, don't you? And I said, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and then another family story came to mind and the aftermath of that. My mother <clears throat> always had a story that she had gone to the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair because her mother was pregnant with her. And I knew that if my grandparents had gone, my grandfather from Southern Illinois, who had an eighth grade education, would have written about it in his newspaper, which he did. And then I found out that in addition to all the wonderful fake marble palaces extolling the virtues of civilization and progress, there were 3,000 human exhibits at the St. Louis World's Fair. Explain that. 3,000 people were on Display. These are living people. These are living people. Hundreds of them were Native Americans. This was celebrating the Louisiana Purchase, and so we had acquired some Native Americans. 1,200 of them, Sarah, were Filipinos. Mm -hmm. And the, all of this was under the auspices of the Department of Anthropology, 
which also sent people to gather specimens. And among the specimens they gathered were five pygmies from Africa. There was someone from the University of Chicago who taught a college course using the specimens. They did tests on them. They did oh anthropometric You're actually using the word specimen. You're talking about human beings. I'm talking about human beings. But no. is that the way they were referred to, though? Well, That's sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. One of them was exhibited in the Bronx. Well, Zoo. so then one of the ones oh from, from the fair went back to Africa, then came back to the United States, and briefly was exhibited in the Bronx, lived in the monkey house at the Bronx Oh, Zoo. my gosh. This was all of this scientific racism of the early 20th century. Yes, right, yes. And it, um, it became known as the eugenics movement. Mm. I discovered, having gone from the fair to the zoo, that the founder of the Bronx Zoo was a man named Madison Grant, who published in 1916 a book called The Passing of the Great Race. And by the great race, he meant not only the white race, but the Nordic white race. Right. Uh, Hitler. I guess that didn't inv- in, in include Jews. Uh, oh, no. No, 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 dear. The Nordics were northern, <laughs> the northern no, Mediterranean and southern. Yes, of course. Yeah. But, but this was an important distinction. And, and Jews were very much the victim of this kind of eugenic mm-hmm. thinking. Uh, it led to, in this country, it led to, and this is a way that I kind of organized the book, it led to three important pieces of legislation in 1924. One was an involuntary sterilization act, which allowed for the sterilization of unfit examples of particularly the white race, because we wanted to keep ourselves very pure. Specimens. Specimens. Um, A second aspect of that was uh, increased anti-miscegenation laws. The toughest anti-miscegenation law in the country was passed in Virginia in 1924. And the third thing was the 1924 Anti-Immigration Act, which had followed two earlier anti-immigration acts, and they got tougher and tougher. And the 1924 one reduced uh, the number of Europeans who were Southern and Eastern Europeans who were allowed to immigrate by going back to the 1890 census before everybody started arriving on Ellis Island, and it completely obliterated the possibility of any Asians immigrating. One reason why Jews could not enter the country in the 1930s is because of that act. You, I, if I can throw in a question here, you, you sound like an historian, but you're a poet. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> and poet. you took all this information and created poetry. I did. Um, I'm a poet who did a lot of research. When I was in high school and graduate school, I wasn't real crazy about doing research because I had to, but I did learn how to do it. Um, But doing this, I I would get absolutely fascinated. Um, I heard Toni Morrison reading uh, an audio book. She always reads her own, by the way. If you don't know that, you should listen to them because she's fabulous. But this was a book called A Mercy, which I don't know if you all know, but it's a book about colonial America, and it's very, very multiracial. And it's a short book, and so at the end of the audio book, the interviewer asks her if she if finds it difficult to do research, and she says, oh, no, I love the research. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing here. She said, the thing is, I have to slap myself and tell myself it's time to write. Yeah. Now, uh, I was always writing at the same time that I was doing research, but one thing fed another. 
and and it it's really hard to quit. It becomes quite addictive, and the business of doing this becomes addictive. I can't, I sort of can't stop. Yeah. If I if I can say, um, a lot of this information that we're talking about is in poetry form. Yes. In your book, Admit One. Yes, that's uh, the last one. An American scrapbook. Yes. Uh, and I mean, I I just started kind of reading it and getting into it because Amazon delivered it yesterday, so, <laughs> so I, I was able to start taking a look at it. And, and it is fascinating, both the historical, but just the poetic voice, and we're going to get to that poetic voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah in fact, could you read us a poem? Uh, from? Uh, well, we thought maybe Lynch. Okay, so... Since that's part of the subject. I, I have a question, though. Yeah. I, I want to just go back, because I didn't want to interrupt you, but lynching postcards? Yes. People would send postcards, pictures of... Yes. Um, and I did a lot of research. This is back to the 2006 book, Blue Front. Blue Front was the name of the restaurant where my father worked. Uh, okay. And I did research in the Ar Illinois archives and looked up the newspapers. And I had seen these postcards. And they all had the name of the photographer on them. And after the lynching took place, the photographer had huge ads in the Cairo newspapers saying half price, deal. They were making, they were sort of new in town and they were making a killing, selling these postcards and then bringing people into their studios. Making a killing. Making a killing, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so people bought them for souvenirs. They, a picture of a man hanging from a yes, tree. Yes, and all the peripheral stuff. You know, they had pictures of the crowd, they had in yeah, this I mean, case, I've seen the, those pictures. And they had pictures of that this body was burned. They had pictures of some kids, of, bo of both black and white kids, looking at the ashes. Um, there's, a, there's a book. The whole thing is online. It's called Without Sanctuary. And I would give you a kind of trigger warning. If you look at those pictures, you'll never be able to get them out of your mind, and they're very disturbing. Um, so that's indeed how it started. So uh, this is the Usian history, though. This is Usian history. Yeah, it is all Usian, and this is very much Usian history, right. and it's very much white history. The and we, photographers we, we, were white. We have yeah. to look at it. We have to look we at do. it. We do. If we, we do. don't, we'll never get out of this. We'll never get out of this. <laughs> and, and it completely writing this book completely changed my life. Blue, blue front. Um, I. Um, I was doing, as I say, I was writing before I had done all the research, and I would come to dead ends. I hadn't gone to the newspapers yet, for example, and I would get emotionally stuck, too. And so I had already written some poems that were obsessed. One of my favorite books is The Dictionary. And so I had already written a number of poems that obsessively dealt with a single word. One was race, in fact. So when I got stuck for the first time, I thought, okay, I'm going to take these lynching words and I'm going to write 14 lines, they won't rhyme, but 14 lines, and one of them will be lynch and the others will be the things that were done to this particular victim. He was hanged, but the rope broke, he was burned, he was shot, and the body was burned. So this is lynch. Wait, 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 was he was he still living when all this stuff was going he on? He was the living. Rope the, the rope broke, and then they shot him. And then he was. They want. They thought they'd throw him into the river, but they decided they'd burn the body instead. And then people collected the parts for souvenirs, which is another poem. So this plays with meanings of Lynch that are 
not actually etymologically related, but it plays with both separation and connection. Okay. So the word is Lynch, and I won't repeat it in, read, in the poem itself. Not as in pin, the kind that keeps the wheels turning, and not the strip of land that marks the border between two fields. Unrelated to link, as in chain, or by extension, whatever connects one part to another, and therefore not a measure of chain, which in any case is less than the span of a hand holding the reins, the rope, the hoe, or taking something like justice into itself, as when a captain turned judge and gave it his name. That was before it lost its balance and crossed the border, the massed body of undoers claiming connection, relation, and intimate right to the prized parts, to the body undone. This is Bar Crawl Radio, and we are talking with poets Sarah Gambito and Martha Collins about the ways their work investigate the idea of overcoming the borders of racism and immigration. Alan and I are joined, too, by poet and reader of poetry, our co-host, Chris Brandt. And we will be right back. Maria Clara Bangumoy Your poetry, both of your poetry, deals with, with these very deep and very emotionally charged uh, subjects. But you also, I would also like to talk a little bit about your, your poetic techniques, your, your, the way you craft these poems, both of you um, include what I think of as hesitancies, that, uh, stops and starts again, and sometimes definite silences like white space on the page, white space, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and also phrases that don't seem to go together, form, formulations that make it necessary to read the poem several times in order to get it, uh, or even just to sit with it for a long time and, and maybe not get it. Um, so when you're using these kind of broken rhythms, leaving out parts of phrases or breaking off in the middle of a phrase, um, if for, exa for example, in, in Sarah's poem, Asado, the first six lines read, I pick her up and pick her up at school. I have to, and we resent it. The daughter grows two limpet horns of learning. Well, that's not a, a, a phrase that you get the first time you read it. Why so difficult? I think um, it's 
it's hard to be a person of color in this country. <laughs> it's, it's just really hard. And um, my thought was that if you wanted something that would just flow through your ears and over your tongue and be so, so easy, that that's not an experience I was interested in. Like, I wanted, um, when you demand a kind of um, athleticism of your reader, it's also a more passionate relationship. And so hopefully the thought is if you sit with me, if we stay together, right, which is to be in relation with one another, that something will open for you, something unexpected. Um, I didn't want a book where you just race through it and you're like, oh, I got it. Like, this idea that to try and piece together, um, I mean, this latest book, this idea of recipes and poems and belonging and commodification, right? Like, that that's all very complicated. And so this idea that you would have to stay a bit and, and wonder and not get it and ask more questions. Like, I, I think that, that I, it would be very exciting for me if there are more questions after reading. So, I, I, I mean, I've just been introduced to Gambito, um, <laughs> and I've been struggling. Because, you know, I, I also brought the other po- poet that I, that I have struggled with as a young man, E. Cummings. Oh, yes, I love him. He was right. the first poet I fell but in love it with, It took actually. me a long time before I kind of started getting into his rhythms and the way he thought. So tell me that if I stick with Gambito, <laughs> that I am going to get something after a while. Something's going to start percolating. That's my hope. That's my hope. That, and that's the thing too. It's like that. Not necessarily that it makes like a didactic kind of like, oh, this is the moral of the story, or this is like I, I wholesale understand. But that it's a felt experience. Right? And almost, I'm looking for something that defies like a kind of cognitive, you know, um, A equals one and B equals two, but more of like, I, I can't forget this. I'm freaked out by this. And, but I'm going to sort of keep the experience, the melodic experience of what is done in the book, like with me. Right, right. I, I'll tell you a story. A friend of mine was being interviewed by people like you who weren't so smart. <laughs> and, and one of these interviewers said, I just don't understand you poets. You write this stuff that I, I just can't understand it. Why do you write stuff I can't understand? My friend calmly said, you know, if somebody reads my poem ten times and still doesn't get it, that's okay with me. And the interview went, well, 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 well. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, that's what I mean. And my friend said, you didn't hear me. I said, if somebody reads my poem ten times, (laughs) which is what Sarah's talking about, it's about the having to go back and go deeper. It's like you don't go to a museum and look at the paintings and walk right past them as if they were illustrations Mm -hmm. in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. You stand there for a while. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. what we're after. And I generally don't look for the explanation either. I just look for the experience. No, you look for the experience. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about. And we're living in such crazy fast times right now. Like I think poetry can really be such a beautiful respite uh, because it does demand that you sit down and you deeply consider and slow down yes yeah yeah, yeah. slow down slow yeah. down yeah. I like that there's an image in in one of Martha's books I think it's in Blue Front um, where you talk about the confluence yeah. of the Mississippi and the Ohio rivers right. 
And where you would expect the two waters to mix, they do not. The muddy brown Mississippi and the blue Ohio have a what sounds like a sharp demarcation between the two waters. It depends on the weather how sharp it is. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, eventually they do. Yeah, eventually yeah. they do, but they start out and they don't. And so it's both an image of complete separation and a hopeful image of integration, if you will. A border that is overcome a without border. a wall. Yeah, without a wall. <laughs> without a wall. <laughs> right. Um, and I think another thing I would say about borders, uh, I think in this country we tend to think about race. If we think race, we think black-white. And it's much more complicated than that. And the history of race in this country is more complicated than that. Who was black and who was white shifted a lot. And black and white was not even a term that we applied to people until the 18th century, the 17th century. And, and in this country, the first people who were not white were the Native Americans. You know, that's, and, and we barely got around to saying white settlers. And then, of course, gradually. And if they had better media, they, if the Native Americans had better media, would they, they would have said not brown. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, they would have just right. t t taken yeah, over. What's yeah. wrong with you? You're not brown. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious, and I think it's a question that Chris had come up, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So is there a relationship between what we've been talking about, the difficulty of your poetry, and the, the, um, the difficulty of kind of entering in and the work that it takes to get into it? Is that related? And I think you were kind of getting to this, yeah. Sarah. Yeah related to the difficulty of what we're going through now with racism and nativism and white supremacy and all that stuff. And um, if we want to engage in that, we, we're, it's not going to be easy. So is the form, is the style part of that? Let me say something about my use of that style. Okay. Um, I can think about it from the point of view of the reader, but I also think about it from the point of view of the writer. And my breaking off, my fragmenting, is honest. It's mm. not that I did not erase, I did not redact, I did not take things away. I did sometimes. Uh, in the very beginning of Bluefront, I'm trying to figure out what in the world the name of the restaurant came from. And so, the Bluefront, what does that mean? Was it the blue of the... Was it the river front of the blue of... That was honest. I didn't know. And as I got more deeply into the book, there were things that I didn't know emotionally and could not deal with emotionally. Mm -hmm. So for me, the breaking off and fragmenting is my, a reflection of myself dealing with this difficult material. And uh, not just a way of trying to make things difficult for the reader, but reflecting how difficult it is for me. I would imagine that it would be difficult to write about this subject and to express those ideas. Well, it might stop you at some point. Yes, it, indeed. And, uh, but I let it stop me without trying to complete the thought. 
mm, without trying know, to solve the thought. Without trying right, to right, solve right. the thought. I mean, Somebody um, asked me, and people ask me after I published Bluefront, well, why, why did you write this as poetry? Why didn't you write it as prose? And, no, it and, work. and it, Well, it does, you know, and yeah. I was able to say that someone whose father had witnessed a, a lynching in Indiana, again in the North, had just published a 400 and some page book, and they could go read that if they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in fact, it would be a completely different experience. Well, in fact, that, that both of you, you're not talking to us magisterially or professorially about racism or immigration issues in this country, you're, you're giving us an experience. Of a struggle, of your own personal struggle. Right. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. That's right. And it's on the page. You can see it on That's the page. Right. That's mm -hmm. right. Because I see you, yes. and then there's a big blank spot. You're going, you, and then I see you thinking. Yeah, that's right. Or, or you think, exactly. like, that's I don't exactly know where right. I'm going with this. That's right. Because nobody taught me to go there, you know. And, and, it's, and what Sarah says about being a person of color in this country, it's true. It's way more difficult than it is for us privileged white people. But a difficulty us privileged white people have is, is cutting through our privilege because we don't have to. And but we have to see that difficulty. Well, we, we, we have to. We have to recognize we, it. We have to if we're going to cut through it. And then to cut through it is an ongoing process and a continual breaking off its struggle. And of course, it's well worth it, but it is a struggle. Mm -hmm. okay. We've talked about the problem, yeah. the problem, the personal problem right. of finding the way through, of communicating. But is there a poem that you have that says, Here's, there's hope at the end of this struggle that we're going through? Maybe for Sarah, it's food. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's related back to what you were asking before. I think what poetry can afford is um, a, a real intimacy with words. Um, I remember after September 11th, um, I mean, New York was like, I mean, every, there's poems everywhere, poems, poems, poems. Even on MTV, they were like, like posting poems every hour. On the subway wall. On the subway, like people yeah. were, and it's just the idea yeah. like when, you need, you need it most because you feel like it's for you and only you. The intimacy of the voice in your ear. Um, so I think that we really need that. And I think that, yeah, so this book with recipes, it's like I think we need to gather together. Mm -hmm. We need to share. We need to open up ourselves, our homes, our recipes. I haven't had a chance to try any of those recipes <laughs> yet, but they sound delicious. And I... <laughs> yeah, I love to cook, so I think, I mean, it's it's alchemy, isn't it? Like yeah, you're putting sure. things together, applying fire, and like well, something and, else and, happens. And it's chefs talk about the marriage of spices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the alchemy can pump also in that communal eating of the food. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. let your guard down when you're yeah. eating, Yeah. right? And you don't even have to speak the same language because we all eat. Exactly. We all like good food. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a poem. We want poems. We want we poems. Want yeah. poems. We want poems. Okay, I, both Blue Front and White Papers end with a poem that... Something hopeful? Somewhat. Okay. <laughs> no food, alas. The only food, <laughs> the only food in the book about the lynching is what people took to the lynchings, so you don't want to hear that. Uh, and this poem, alas, is a little bit dated. It was written in 2009. Um, we know who was elected then. I heard Obama just this morning talking about Elijah Cummings. So uh, a little out of date, 
But this reflects back to the first poem of White Papers where I talk about all the racism of my childhood and how my mother and father talked and how you couldn't, how there were no courses taught with any people of color in them. So this is the last white paper, um, just numbered 45. Although my father, although my mother, although we rarely, although we whispered, although the silence, although the absence, although even now some TV books, not to mention radio, websites, new militias, hate groups raging against our socialist, communist, fascist, although, but still. Our textbooks now, our museums mostly, our college literature courses, even our crayons, not to mention our young president who could scarcely have been imagined when we, when I, and although I've gone back and filled in some blanks, I'm still learning this unlearning, untying the knot of yes, but, rewriting this yes, yes. And like any good poem, it takes your breath away. It does. And, it, and you have to just think a little bit. I want to read it a few more times myself. And this is in this is in blue front. Uh, no, this is white papers. White this papers, okay. So it's the last have. poem in white papers. Last poem in white papers. <laughs> okay, I'm sure we can get it on Amazon. Uh, yes, you can. Yeah. Get everything on Amazon. Sarah. <laughs> or elsewhere. Yeah, you're <laughs> up. Uh, okay, so I'll read this poem called Ancestor. I've been thinking a lot about how we can place ourselves, um, thinking about the generations in the past and the generations that will come after us. Um, Okay, yeah, I guess I'll just read it. Um, Ancestor. The one woven into brass tapestry. Heavy with rain, where weak neck babies cry from a sideways newspaper. Flashlight, when you shine through, the veins of our house fill with maples. I traveled with my small, cloudy hands. I drank wine out of plastic cups. You can't depend on the trapeze of your ears, the poor warthogs of your hands. You hold them ping-ponging in your hands, your hands in the hands of everybody in different churches. How beautiful to be gusted in these different ways, glassine and shaking yourself with canine aplomb. He had the immigrant Captain Kirk way of speaking. I want you to be deeply heard, for you to take for granted that people will hear what you say, but for you not to be naive or surprised when people turn away. When I was brave, I pushed my feet into the pedals, and these pushed me into the world I wanted to be in. I was high and above all the other birds. The birds flew in harlequins around me. Very Those nice. poems are so moving, and, and yet, you just don't quite understand why. You, I have to go back and read that again. I love that. I, I, that's, I, that's, I, what, that's what we get excited yeah. Because then it's, then, it's like, then it's like it has a life of its own. It's got yes. its own yes. green yeah. growing. Yeah, but, but listening and it's not, to you. It's not even ours anymore. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's yours. <laughs> it's, no, yes, it's, not. <laughs> it's itself. It's yours. It's ours. Thank you very much. Thank you. But I mean, oh, your yeah. voice in communicating that was. It, I mean, I would. I almost got into it. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love there. it. Success. I mean, I, what I saw was a child all the way through this. Yes. Yeah. I saw yes. the child. No, I mean, my dad. This was you in my the My dad was obsessed with Star Trek, and he would watch uh-huh. William Shatner. I love that. And he copied his cadence <laughs> because wow. it was like, you know, it was like American commanding yeah. the captain. And so I just like absorb, you know, but but, but this to find a sense of strength and agency, like that's that's what you do. So, what did he do when he saw him in Boston Legal? (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't look, I couldn't look, I had to look like through my fingers, it was was a little impossible. (laughs) And TJ, TJ TJ Hooker, or like he was in another, like a cop. Drama oh, yes, too. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue yeah. something. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. and he yeah. did that too. Yeah, yeah, I just, I just like, you know, I William Shatner that. has disappointed me. <laughs> he'll always be, he'll always like be Captain Kirk, yeah. Okay. So thank you so much. Yeah, this you. was thank lovely. Thank you. So grateful. So, and to hear your work and hear you speak about your process, I am so in admiration. Well, thank I, you. you know, I am so great. I just, I've, I've been reading this and I and I love it. And, and you know, things I could have said. Your recipes are like my research, oh, and my God, and, and they are. I mean, this is, you know, people talk about this stuff as documentary poetics, but this is documentary. But it's and yours it's a document. I know it's I know it's a life. life. It's a lived life. Well, and but but you know, to put the recipes in there is gutsy. It's not. This is not poetry, and there's a lot in my books that aren't poetry. Yes. And then for people to have to. Yeah, the, post, the postcards that you... No, no, no you, we're still recording. Oh, we are? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, keep going. Perfect, <laughs> you're perfect. This you're is lovely. good stuff. You're perfect. Yeah, this is great. Now I lost my brain. I thought we were just chatting. Putting, well, you say said, that, well we are putting, just uh, chatting. We are, this whole thing's been chatting. So, you were saying by putting recipes in so, it. So, it, you know, it, then it's the negotiation between what is truly documentary. You can't read it quite the same right. way you read it as That's poetry. That's right. That's right. And then you go to the poem. That's right. And you say, well, That's I got right. the recipe. Yeah. Oh, what yeah. does that have to do with poem? Uh-huh. And the same thing happens when mm-hmm. I'm quoting from newspapers mm-hmm. and then going to something lyrical like Lynch, which may not make a whole lot of sense the first time you read it. Yeah. But, but that negotiation is kind of the negotiation that we have to do in our lives anyway, between the deep thinking and the stuff that's yeah. part of us that's easier to take in. Yeah. And, yeah. and I love that about coming out of this. And uh, we want to thank Sarah Gambito and Martha Collins, both of you, for helping BCR inaugurate our first in a series of conversations about poetry in neighborhood bars. Hopefully we're going to have several more. And maybe we, there's so much more I think you two could say. Oh, God, we could go on Maybe we, we could do another two shows yeah. on, on your poetry. <laughs> so poetry, what is it good for? So that's, that's, and this that's is one of the things it's good for, bringing people Thank together. Thank you. Very grateful. Thank you so much. This thank you so much. You, you all are great. Oh, well, yes. Thank you. Unlike the These person I referred to. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> questions we won't, are we won't name names. Yeah. Who is it? Thank you. <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. I don't no. know. Okay. No, Honestly, no, no, no names. Right. We, 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 we're, we're, uh, Jerry Seinfeld is, uh, is in town, and he's <laughs> across the street. And we were told by the owner, Matt Gephardt, we had to get out of here by 5, so we got to finish up. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right, so we're going to finish up this show. All right, um, go for it. If you like what you hear on the Barcore Radio podcast, be sure to like us on Facebook, 
subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast and email us at barcoreradio at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions, but only the good ones. And coming up on Barcrawl Radio, we will be traveling across the waters all the way to Pachok. Is that how you say it? Pachok. 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 Pachok, Long Island, to join up with Chris Crest's podcast, Long Island History Project, to talk about prohibition at the brand new Daisy Duke's Country Club Bar. Right. It used to be Hoptron. Hoptron Brewery or something, and now so it's the Daisy Duke's Country Club Bar. now it's the Daisy Club Duke's Country right. Club Bar. I'm not wearing any Daisy Dukes. I just want to say that. I don't know. It might be sexy. And every other week, catch Alan and I. It's every other other week, catch Alan and I talk about our lives on the Upper West Side. And that's a show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Alan. And thank right. you, and Rebecca. This was awesome. Thank, thank you, you guys. Both. Oh, you, and this is lovely. A, you have such great radio like yeah. voices yeah. to hear. Yeah. Yeah.